Okay, Isaiah 24, 1 to 13. See, the Lord is going to lay waste the earth and devastate it. He will ruin its face and scatter its inhabitants. It will be the same for priests as for people, for the master as for his servant, for the mistress as for her servant, for seller as for buyer, for borrower as for lender, for debtor as for creditor. The earth will be completely laid waste and totally plundered. The Lord has spoken this word. The earth dries up and withers. The world languishes and withers. The heavens languish and with the earth. The earth is defiled by its people. They have disobeyed the laws, violated the statutes, and broken the everlasting covenant. Therefore, a curse consumes the earth. Its people must bear their guilt. Therefore, earth's inhabitants are burned up and very few are left. The new wine dries up and the vine withers. All the merrymakers groan. The joyful timbrels are stilled. The noise of the, the revelers has stopped. The joyful harp is silent. No longer do they drink wine with a song. The beer is bitter t- to its drinkers. The ruined city lies desolate. The entrance to every house is barred. In the streets they cry out for wine, or joy turns to gloom. All joyful sounds are banished from the earth. The city is left in ruins. Its gates um, is battered to pieces. So will it be on the earth and among the nations as when an olive tree is beaten or when gleanings are left after the grape harvest. And now on to chapter 25, verse 6 to 12. On this mountain, the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich food for all peoples, a banquet of aged wine the best of meats and the finest of wines. On this mountain he will destroy the shroud that enfolds all peoples, the sheet that covers all nations. He will swallow up death forever. The sovereign Lord will wipe away the tears from all faces. He will remove his people's disgrace from all the earth. The Lord has spoken. In that day they will say, Surely this is our God. We trusted in him and he saved us. This is the Lord, we trusted in him. Let us rejoice and be glad in his salvation. The hand of the Lord will rest on this mountain, but Moab will be trampled in their land, as straw is trampled down in manure. They will stretch out their hands in it, as swimmers stretch out their hands to swim. God will bring down their pride, despite the cleverness of their hands. He will bring down your high fortified walls and lay them low, He will bring them down to the ground, to the very dust. Thank you, Sienna. Uh, Hi, my name's Nick, if we haven't met. It's uh, great to be with you. Can I add my welcome to uh, Joe and the rest, and especially if you're here for the first time. We're glad you can be here with us. Uh, One of the things we do at Uni Church is we preach through the Bible. We take uh, whatever chapter we're up to, and we open it up, and we see what it says. So we're going to be looking at uh, Isaiah 24 and 25, and if you want to keep that open, uh, that will do you well. Uh, for the last few months, there has been a growing pitter-patter on the roof of the back office in our church. Not the pitter-patter of rain, but the pitter-patter of feet. Tiny rodent feet, to be exact. Uh, barely a day goes past without the interruption of some animal scuttering across the plasterboard or bouncing between the beams. God tests all of us from time to time, and this has been my test. 
so naturally we began to ask, how do you return life to its natural order? How do you restore uh, man to his place above the beasts? How do you bring peace on earth to the church office? Clearly, the church wardens have given up on their duties. But let it be known that the judgment of the church receptionist brooks no rivals. Uh, I have here an email dated November 14, received at 3.38pm. Hi, Janine. I found the rats. Can we get some poison? I will take them down. (laughs) Uh, Email reply, same day, 3.42pm. Ooh, yes, I would be most grateful. Do whatever needs to happen. And so we await uh, the results of our quest. This evening we're looking at Isaiah's prophecy to Israel. And one of the things you need to understand about ancient Israel is that uh, in a geopolitical sense they were a nation surrounded. At the time of Isaiah, uh, Israel was a fairly minor player and so to the north they had big nations like Syria and Assyria. Uh, To the east they had Babylon. To the south they had Egypt. Huge empires jostling around them. And the thing that these empires just did all the time was fight. It's just kind of uh, the national pastime for these empires to fight. But where? Uh, Like Australia, the Middle East is is a desert, it's full of sand, and so uh, for big empires to go to war, to send out their armies, they can't travel through the desert because their their armies would would perish in the sun. And so what they needed was uh, was a safe and leafy place to to send their armies through on the way to fight uh, the other empires. And in the Middle East, that was Israel, a safe and leafy place for nations to use for war. Uh, They were like a highway and a supermarket, a pawn in the empirical game of chess. So where does Israel find peace? How does Israel find security and hope for the future? Where does Israel look to for restoration when everything goes wrong? Isaiah tells us that it is only in the unrivaled judgment of God. And today we live in a not too dissimilar world. Uh, Global conditions are in turmoil. The church is under pressure from the world. The world is under pressure from itself. Nations are again gearing for war. And where there isn't war, there are bullies. Where there aren't bullies, there is gossip. Where there isn't gossip, there are broken relationships, there is sickness and death. There is the pressure we all feel of just keeping life afloat. You wake up each day and this is what you scroll through on your screen. And if it's not on your screen, it's in your heart. So how do we restore the world to rights? How do we find peace where peace is hard to find. Where do you go to for restoration? The highly surprising answer from Isaiah this evening is that it's in the unrivaled judgment of God. If I can put it this way, there's no pettiness in God's judgment, but only his good purpose to restore his people. Uh, Two things we want to see this evening. Uh, Firstly, judgment is the end of all that is wrong. And secondly, judgment is the beginning of all that is right. It's the end of all that is wrong. It is the beginning of all that is right. 
Uh, I'm no musical expert, but one of the things that classical music often does is it takes a a theme or a melody and it kind of reworks it through uh, the rest of the symphony or whatever piece of music is being played. And so uh, you're listening along and and you know that it started to sound different. You know, maybe the tempo has changed or different uh, musical instruments have dropped in or out. And yet you also, you, you sense a piece of similarity, that there's, there's something familiar about what is being played. And in the Bible, uh, a similar thing kind of happens, that Isaiah, he riffs off other parts of the Bible that have been written centuries before. If you hear here last week, uh, Evan showed us how our salvation was described like a new exodus out of Egypt or, or a new Garden of Eden. And here in chapter 24, the description takes us back to the days of Noah and the ark and the flood. Uh, there's, there's quite a few similarities, but the dead giveaway is verse 18 in chapter 24, where Isaiah quotes directly from Genesis and says, the floodgates of heaven are opened. It's the language of the flood. Uh, if you know the Noah story, God had just made the world and it had uh, barely been made when suddenly everything went wrong. By chapter 6, of the opening pages of the Bible, we hear these chilling words, the human heart is only evil all of the time. And so what does God do? God sends a flood to to reset the world. And it almost worked. It almost worked, except it didn't deal with the human heart. God said in Genesis that he would never flood the world again, uh, in part because he was kind, but in part because surface cleansing would never work. One day, a deeper clean would need to come to make the world right again. Which brings us back to Isaiah. Uh, See, like the movement of, of a symphony, a piece of music, we have here in Isaiah something that sounds like a flood, total devastation across the globe. And yet, unlike the flood, it isn't just water, but total cataclysmic destruction of the whole earth, total devastation of everything that has gone wrong. And we see this uh, developed in a number of ways. Uh, Firstly, in this chapter, notice who comes under the judgment of God. Uh, It's everybody. Verse 1 and 2. See, the Lord is going to lay waste the earth and devastate it. He will ruin its face and scatter its inhabitants. It will be the same for priest as for people, for the master as for his servant, for the mistress as for her servant, for the seller as for the buyer, for the borrower as for the lender, for the debtor. As for the creditor, Isaiah paints for us the full human spectrum the priest and the layperson, the the master and the servant. And he says, though in the world they might be different, under the judgment of God they will be treated the same. As one person said, in life you may be rich or poor, but death is the great equaliser. The greatest communism is death. And so for judgment as well. Uh, In chapter 24, verse 18, there is no escape. Whoever flees at the sound of terror will fall into a pit. Whoever climbs out of the pit will be caught in a snare. Like in the days of the flood where the waters covered the globe, so God's final cataclysmic judgment will find all of us. Notice who. Secondly, notice why. We see the why in verses 5 and 6. The earth is defiled by its people. They have disobeyed the laws, violated the statutes, and broken the everlasting covenant. 
Therefore, a curse consumes the earth. Its people must bear their guilt. One of the reasons we find judgment so distasteful is that we can't stand the idea that God would be displeased with me. We think about God being angry and it doesn't sit well. But of course, from his perspective, it doesn't sit well that we have displeased him. There is no sense in the Bible that God is judging us because he's just out to get us. What we actually see is that we have brought it upon ourselves by being out to get him. Whether it's the statues or decrees of Israel or the everlasting covenant of basic moral right and wrong, a curse consumes the earth because we have displeased the one who is pleased to make us. When the world goes wrong, that's what we're experiencing. And like any disobedient child and their parent, the travesty here isn't that the parent is angry but that the child refuses to see it or admit it or even recognise it. Uh, Maybe it helps to think of all the people that have displeased you recently. Politicians, a colleague, your boss, uh, your teachers back in high school, your parents, a now distant friend, your spouse, your kids someone here at church. If anything, we live in a constant frustration at others. We are constantly displeased because of how people act. So is it any wonder when God stares at eight billion of us that he might be a little displeased as well? Notice who. Notice why. Lastly, notice what. And the what is devastation. There is no denying the force of the pictures that Isaiah uses in this passage. In verse 3, God speaks and the earth is totally plundered. In, in verse 20, God's power sends the earth reeling like a drunkard, swaying like a hut run down in the wind. In verse 19, the earth breaks. After it breaks, it splits. After it splits, it is shaken. This is total, all-encompassing, global devastation. At one point, the world is a a languishing vine, then it's a wasted city, then it's a battered tree. For a sinful world, for sinners like us, this is the end. This is how it will come. But there is hope in God, and it comes in verse 23. Isaiah says in 23, The moon will be dismayed, the sun ashamed. For the Lord Almighty will reign on Mount Zion and in Jerusalem and before its elders with great glory. Uh, I'm not sure about you, but one of the hardest objections that I find to Christianity is the simple question, I'm suffering, so does God care? You look out over our world and nothing works as it should. Nothing lasts as long as it should. No one is as good as we want. Things hurt. There's pain. There's loss. Anxiety. Mistrust. Things hurt. Does God care? You pick up the paper on Monday morning like a few weeks ago and you read about a boy hunted down in the street. Does God care? Does he see that? The coming reign of God is the signal that evil 
and brokenness will not rule forever. That God will take charge and put an end to all that is wrong. I love how Isaiah puts it. He says that in that day, the brightness and glory of God's rule will put the sun and the moon to shame. You can imagine uh, holding a candle in front of the sun and seeing its light fade. And then taking the sun and putting it in front of God's bright rule and seeing the sun fade. That is what we're talking about with the reign of God. If you want justice, if you want oppression and evil to be put to a stop, we've been on the earth for a long, long time. What we need is the unrivaled judgment of God. Judgment is the end of all that is wrong. And wonderfully, it's also the beginning of all that is right. And that's what we see in chapter 25. Uh, As we step from the devastation of chapter 24 to the restoration of chapter 25, it's worth seeing how Isaiah has arranged his ideas. Uh, At the start and the end of this chapter, what we find are two songs which kind of play off each other. So uh, in verses 1 to 5, we get a song that Isaiah uh, sings in private as as he praises God for all that he's done. And then in verses 9 to 12, we get a song, not in private, but in public. We, we kind of zoom out and, and we see not just Isaiah, but now all of Israel praising and singing to God. And so in 25.1, uh, Isaiah calls out to God and he says, you are my God. But then in verse 9, Israel says, this is our God. It's as if the, uh, the dust is settling on the demolition. And Isaiah is painting a picture of, of one and then two and then three and then uh, whole throngs of crowds emerging to see what God has done. And between these two songs in verses 6 to 8, we see exactly what it is that God has done. He set a banquet for all to attend. A wonderful banquet. Uh, we don't really do feasts that well in Australia. You used to be able to get a McFeast from Macca's for about 10 bucks, but uh, for health reasons, they've obviously taken that off their menu. And so maybe a wedding reception is the closest analogy to what we're talking about. And in Israel, a feast, it's not just about the meal, it's about the celebration. Uh, a feast for, for, for Israel, it's, it's about the community, whole, whole families, whole towns, the whole nation coming together because something wonderful has happened. And that's the reason why the food is so extravagant at this feast. Uh, In verse 6, Isaiah describes the most Shenton Park dinner party you have ever conceived of. It's a a banquet of aged wine, the best of meats, the finest of wines. Even uh, the boat shed in Cottesloe couldn't provide a spread like this. This is a feast. It's not put on by the good grocer around the corner. This is the God grocer bringing out all the best uh, for his people. It's interesting, isn't it, that in chapter 24, uh, the vine languished and the joy of of celebration ceased. But in chapter 25, joy is restored at this great banquet feast. But who's it for? Who is this feast for? Verse 4, not the elites, not the rich, not the powerful. Verse 4, God, you have been a refuge for the poor, a refuge for the needy in their distress. God's end time banquet, it's for the people that missed out. 
It's for, for God's people who've been denied and downtrodden. God swings open his doors and he says, you trusted in me yesterday, so today, welcome to my house, come for the feast. Which raises the question then, what are they celebrating? And the answer is the end of death. Put yourself back in Israel's shoes, uh, surrounded by nation after nation, empire after empire, and all they can see is death uh, haunting them from every side. In their day, the threat of the nations was war, and the threat of war was the threat of exile, and the threat of exile was the threat of death, separated from God, away from him. But on the day of judgment, Isaiah says in verse 8, that God will swallow up death forever. The sovereign Lord will wipe away the tears from all faces. He will remove his people's disgrace from all the earth. Maybe you know those tears all too well. You know what it's like uh, to cry because of death. You know what it's like uh, to cry uncontrollably because there is nothing that can be done. Isaiah describes death like a shroud covering your life, covering your family, like a sheet covering your joy. Can you imagine what it would be like when God reaches down and wipes tears with his hand from your face? That's the kind of banquet that you're being invited to. That's why there's so much joy So much celebration. And this is what God's judgment does. In 1 Corinthians 15, it says that one day all enemies will be put under the feet of Jesus and the greatest and last enemy to be defeated will be death. That's what God's judgment's going to do. It's going to restore life to those that long for it. I like the picture in verse 4 and 5. Isaiah Uh, describes the oppressors of God's people like the heat of a desert kind of bearing down on them, Uh, no shade in sight, like a a long, hot summer's afternoon. And then suddenly God appears like a cooling cloud, covers the sun, the the, the breeze uh, comes in and suddenly all is well. It's the feeling of relief, relief that God has finally made his move. Relief that that pain and death and turmoil and suffering has been brought to its knees. If you're looking for that kind of relief, here it is. On the day of God's judgment, all that is right will finally begin again. And we see this, of course, in the life of Jesus himself. Uh, Like the wedding feast at Cana, where where Jesus miraculously uh, provided the wine. Our final beginning will be like a wedding reception, full of joy, full of celebration. Like uh, the, the raising of Lazarus from the dead. We too will hear those famous words, Lazarus, come out. And God will say our name when the resurrection happens. Like the parables where, where Jesus uh, pictures an abundant feast for all of his people. Those parables will become our reality. It's going to be a wonderful day. But like all of Jesus' teaching, he is not just the saviour, but he is also the judge. 
In John 6, we learn that the Father has entrusted all judgment to his Son. One day he will bring a new beginning, but he will also bring many things and many people to an end. Which raises the question, where do you stand with God? In the end, this passage invites us to consider the choice of two worlds. In the world under judgment, chapter 24 says that all singing and all joy will cease because that will be the world of all that is wrong. But in the new world where everything is right, God's people will sing his praises again. In the world under judgment, the earth will crumble into dust. But for the people of God, their city will rise as high as a mountain. Uh, Like in the flood where, where the ark came to rest on a mountain. It is on the mountain where God's people will find refuge from the coming storm. In 25.10, there's a a dual image where God's hand gently rests on God's people while his foot treads on those that have refused to bow the knee. So where do you stand with God? Where do you stand with his son, who is the judge? Uh, Our theme tonight has obviously been the theme of judgment. Uh, Plainly, it is not an easy idea. It comes with baggage. Even for the most ardent believer, it comes with questions. So is this a God that we can trust, a God who judges? Can we say with Isaiah and with Israel, this is my God or this is our God? Is a God who judges really a God we can trust? In The Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe, uh, C.S. Lewis tells a story where uh, Susan and Lucy start to think about Aslan for the first time and what it will be like to meet him. Uh, And in uh, Lewis's universe, uh, Aslan has lots of connotations uh, to God himself. And it's worth uh, pondering this part of the story as I read it for you. Uh, Where they are, they're in Mr. and Mrs. Beaver's house uh, talking about Aslan, this great lion figure. Is he a man? asked Lucy. Aslan a man? said Mr. Beaver sternly. Certainly not. I tell you, he is the king of the wood and the son of the great emperor beyond the sea. Don't you know who is the king of beasts? Aslan is a lion, the the lion, the great lion. Oh, said Susan. I thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. That you will, dearie, and no mistake, said Mrs. Beaver. If there is anyone who can appear before Aslan without their knees knocking, they're either braver than most or else just silly. Then Then he isn't safe, said Lucy. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Don't you hear what Mrs. Beaver tells you? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe. But he's good. He's the king, I tell you. Of course he isn't safe. But he is good. He's the king, I tell you. Uh, God is a God who judges. But his goodness is seen in pouring out his judgment on his one and beloved son. That all who trust in him might come to him for eternal life that they might not receive punishment for their sins, 
but the gift of a good and generous king. Can we trust a God who judges? Can we trust a God who who judges his own son to make our sins right and judges the whole world to make the new creation perfect? Can you trust in a God like that?